because I want to talk about the drama this week, um, and I don't want to be dramatic about it. And so you saw me attempt not being dramatic about it earlier this week whenever I was talking about it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, I'm going to switch back to my screen over here. This is uh, a screenshot I took last night. I hadn't seen it. Okay, so uh, Cynthia Astle uh, owns and runs UM Insight, which is a, a website where she does her own reporting. She used to work for United Methodist News Service. I don't know why she's not with them anymore. Uh, I've known for a long time that she uh, leans super far left, but I liked her because when I was covering Bishop Carcano, uh, uh, I was of the mind that the institution of the UMC was behaving immorally, and so was she. So we were both wanting things to be brought out into the light and transparency, and I think that's something that she and I both still have in common. But uh, what was exposed this last week was she and I have a radically different understanding of what's appropriate to publish or not. She, her website publishes not just her news, but she has a number of commentators, one of whom being uh, Reverend Richard Bryant of the Western North Carolina Annual Conference. He wrote a piece this last week. You saw the dramatic thumbnail with a person holding a semi-automatic rifle to another person's head um, because the, the, the metaphor that the article used was terrorism. He did not, to be fair, I didn't say this in the video, he did not use the word Hamas. I don't think he even used the word terrorist. However, he did use the words um, human shields, fundamentalist, hostage, um, there were a couple of other words that definitely pointed towards the news cycle in Hamas right now and put disaffiliators in the role of um, hostage-taking terrorists that, that uh, are evil. <laughs> you know, uh, you got to read the article. That, uh, what, Cynthia Astle eventually pulled it, and I, I, from the beginning, said this shouldn't have been published. I didn't call Cynthia out by name. I, I'm, I don't have interest in ongoing feuds or anything like that, and I hope to get things worked out with Cynthia. But Cynthia heard, actually I tagged UM Insight on Twitter whenever I published my piece. I, I did call out the author, Richard Bryant by name, because it was so heinous and unhinged that it just seemed, it, well, and I'll come back to the, the interpersonal thing, but I, I published my piece saying, this is just asinine. You cannot put this stuff out into the world it's bad for discourse. It's it's super hateful, unhealthy, and unhinged. I said a number of words, and I meant them, and I still mean them today. I was also very clear I didn't want any harm to come to him. I believe in free speech. I, I believe that people should be able to say what they want without fear of physical repercussions, and so I, I stand strongly by that. I put out a before I even saw this post from Cynthia, I put out a, a post of my own just saying, hey, if you're following me and you want to threaten the people that I highlight, go ahead and just unfollow me. Just unsubscribe. I don't want your support. I, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. You know. So there are going to be people. You know. We need to talk about meaningful things without worrying about what crazy people are going to do about it. So if you're crazy, if you're a person that has a gun and wants to use it on people you disagree with, just go away. Yeah, I can't have anything to do with you. It's it's too important. You can't you can't be compromising what we're doing here. So anyway, here's here's the post that Cynthia made. After vicious right-wing backlash by the Reverend Rob Renfro and Reverend Jeffrey Rickman on YouTube and X, formerly Twitter, the Reverend Richard Bryant's essay that previously appeared in this space has been removed out of concern for the author's safety. 
As editor, I chose to publish Richard's essay because I thought the point he made was valid, that theologically we flawed human beings are all vulnerable to allowing ourselves to become hostages to ill-informed, ignorant beliefs. So that is not what he said in the article. I don't know if Cynthia doesn't know that or if she is crazier than I thought. I, I don't know how much of what she has said since then she thinks is true or if she's just doing damage control. What, what I'll say very flatly is the article should never have been published. Anyone who wants to be taken seriously as a, a good faith conversation partner would not publish an article like that. Um, I think it was really bad judgment on Cynthia's part. I've been warned by other people, hey, Cynthia, she's just a crazy leftist. You cannot work with her. I don't want to believe that. I want to believe that that Cynthia can be worked with. I would like to I like collaborating with whoever I can, especially if they have a concern for the truth. But the problem with this particular post is Rob Renfro had nothing to do with it. He never commented on anything that I'm aware of with respect to this guy at all. What, what happened is as soon as I tagged her in it, I noticed that she commented on the interview I did with Rob Renfro, which if you didn't see it, go watch it. It's, it's really good. I really enjoyed Rob. He's a, he's a fantastic guy. But we didn't say a thing about that article because it hadn't even been published yet. But she got on there and wrote uh, a comment just like, this is completely inaccurate. This is gross. And then she roped Rob Renfro into everything from then on. So what that told me was Cynthia didn't even watch my critique. She just assumed that me and Rob were talking and that's that's who the context of it. Rob had nothing to do with it. So the reason that I think it's worth highlighting right now is if I haven't done research, I just don't talk about it because I don't know. I mean, there is a thousand different ways I could be wrong. It's embarrassingly wrong for her to drag Rod Bremfro's name into this whenever he hasn't said anything. Um, and he hasn't even defended himself. The guy's just used to getting dragged through the mud by progressives that are just, that hate him uh, because they hate conservatives. So um, that's, that's the first thing that should just make everybody understand that Cynthia, it was clear that the author of this piece was deranged, but I start thinking that, that anyone who publishes something like this is likewise deranged. It's just not appropriate. It's not something that serious adults can promote. And then when you start metaphorizing it and, and disconnecting it from its obvious plain meaning, that's crazy as well. So I, I don't know, maybe Cynthia and I just can't be friends. Um, I don't know. But I would like to think that <laughs> if somebody's going to hold themselves as a journalist in any capacity, they have to care for what's true. And the way that she represented what he said isn't true. If you, if you don't believe me, just go over to Chris Ritter's website, peopleneedjesus.net, uh, type in UM Insiders. I, I don't know what you would search for, but he's got it posted there, a, a scan of the original article. The other thing I need to say about that, I felt good about everything that I said in that, except at one point I went and looked at his LinkedIn account and I also looked at his picture on uh, the article that uh, was there, and I said, this man needs help. One person wrote me and said, hey, it's really tacky to just make fun of someone for being ugly. And that was not my intent at all. You know, I don't think being ugly is not a sin. There's nothing wrong with being ugly. You can't help it. Um, I, I think depending on who's looking at me and what day it is, I, I'm quite ugly. You know, I, I would hate to think that what, what it conveyed to me what I thought I saw in the pictures was over time he has gotten, he's, he's showing signals outwardly that he's not doing okay. If the, if the words were not hysterical enough, it's like the beret guy, 
you remember the holy hex guy who's wearing a beret on the floor of annual conference and he's 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 uh, people tell you things by their outward portrayal sometimes i i know that we live in a culture where we say oh you can't assume anything about anybody by the way they self present but you know that's just not true people tell the public what they want them to know about them by the way that they present themselves by the way that they walk and the clothes that they wear. I'm telling you things about me with with my hair and my face and my beard and my clothes. Um, and so that's what I was remarking on with respect to the author. It wasn't making fun of him for the way that he looks. It seemed very clear to me from a number of different ways that the man is not doing well. I said a prayer at the end that I really meant. I, I wish good things for this man. I'm very concerned about him. What, what Cynthia Astle eventually said was, um, that his article was pulled out of concern for his safety. According to him, I think, he got a call at home and a call at his church that he took as very threatening. Now, I'm. there are crazy people that threaten people, and that is within the realm of possibility, but also it, I live in a world where I'm regularly hearing reports of people who claim to have been victimized only later being exposed to have either wildly exaggerated what has happened or completely fabricated what has happened. So until a voicemail is played, I'm, I'm inclined to think that he's either being hysterical again, as he was in his article, just, you know, if someone called him at the church, you know, don't call a pastor's house, I guess, but if someone called him at the church and said, hey man, I'm taking issue with what you wrote here, I think it's wrong-headed, I think it's really hateful, as long as they're not calling him names and threatening him, I think that, you know, if you don't want people to call you at your church and respond to your public ministry, just don't say or do anything that people could take issue with publicly. But, you know, this is part of being a pastor. I've gotten calls at the church with people who were not happy with me at all. I get my name regularly dragged through the mud online. It's just the name of the game. If you can't, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. I think I said on the, the video, I think he should get out of the kitchen anyway. I think it's just gone bad. Once you get to this point of saying the things that he said, it's just nasty and icky. I think you have to get out, not just for the sake of the connection, but for his own personal sake. If you're in a place personally where you're spending hours writing this thing and putting it out into the internet, like that is a cry for help. So um, I told you guys uh, to reach out to his bishop at least and let her know. Um, but also, I don't think there's anything wrong with maturely kindly letting someone who wrote such a thing know that it isn't appreciated <laughs> and that it it's really harmful. Uh, Duncan says, I can frame your views as violence. If you criticize my point, you only have to prove my point. I am now unsafe. So, okay, yeah, this was the other thing. <laughs> there were a lot of things I wanted to say today, and of course I didn't take notes. But um, James Lindsay has helped me understand a lot of the strategy that left-leaning persons use. And what, what is important to understand is just like the right doesn't have like central leaders that we all take marching orders from, the left is just a series of uh, presuppositions that are associated with political and theological convictions. And anyway, there are different strategies used. James Lindsay marched through this essay written by... Um, I can't remember his name. He was one of the leaders of the Weather Underground. But he talked through strategy of moving the needle further left in any given scenario. And one of the, the big tactics used is um, what he called mid-level violence, but I would call it low-level violence. Like violence is an overstatement of what it is. What it essentially is 
if you use a metaphor, if you've ever had a sibling, it's like putting your finger right in their face and saying, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, where if you react to that with violence, if you punch them in the nose, that is an overreaction and you're the bad guy. However, if you don't react, then you um, not only appear weak, but you are demoralized and feel weak. And so that's what the left has largely done politically, but also within the church is this long-term provocation that then whenever we react, they portray it as an overreaction, overly hostile, overly violent, and then they feel at risk, you know, because we are these frothing at the mouth fundamentalist conservatives, which is not the case. But then it makes us defensive. Well, I can't do anything that could be seen as uh, offensive or I must seem gentle in all my ways, which is an undue burden on people that need to speak the truth with love. You know, it, we are not responsible for how crazy people behave in response to the truth. We're not responsible for how emotionally fragile people respond to the truth. If you watch Jesus or Paul and how that they behaved in ministry, they spoke the truth clearly in love so that anyone who's predisposed to take offense could and obviously did. I mean, why do you think they killed Jesus? But even so, you know, the burden on us is not I can't offend anybody or everybody has to feel safe in my presence. The burden is am I speaking the truth in love? And then if it's not received well, it's not because we did it wrong. It's because, um, well, there, there are different reasons. One can be Satan is taking away their, you know, when Jesus talks about the sower sowing seed, remember the birds come and take the seed off, off the path. And he says, that's Satan taking the word from taking root in people's lives. But it's also the case that some people are just too fragile and they're going to take offense at everything. And the more you kowtow to them and operate around them like that, the more you enable them and they will just perpetually be like that. A lot of people need to understand that the world is going to continue functioning even if they take offense. And in fact, we don't have the time or the energy. Um, we're, we're not obligated to care that they have taken offense. Um, we, that doesn't mean we're entitled to just be nasty. That just means that there are certain norms about where the lines of propriety are that we're going to maintain. And so whenever someone crosses those lines of propriety as he did, calling his enemies terrorists and equating them with Hamas, even if not explicitly, um, that was clearly low-level violence. That was clearly, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. And then whenever I reacted, there was a hysterical response, not just by him, but by Cynthia, who, yes, she should have taken the article down. I'm glad she took the article down. Um, but she shouldn't have posted it in the first place, and he shouldn't have written it in the first place. I think that was all the things I meant to say about that. I, I, I don't know if there's going to be any more developments there. I don't want to beef with anybody, but I do feel like um, if you can't call out bad actors, not just the bad actions, but I think there are actor, people who repeatedly say and do things that are caustic, uh, vitriolic, bad for the, the group dynamic. If you can't name those people, then they're going to continue to interlope and assert themselves in group dynamics and ruin everything. And so I think if, if any group wants to defend itself and provide for health, you have to call out the bad actors. Problem is the United Methodist Church is a dysfunctional environment, and the only people who can do that are people outside of the system. So then they say, well, you're not a United Methodist anymore. Why are you commenting on this? Well, because I care about you guys. I want the United Methodist Church to do well, but you're not going to do well if you continue to tolerate voices like that. So I hope Cynthia Astle learned her lesson and doesn't publish any more 
god-awful garbage like that anymore. All right, there was something else I knew I wanted to talk about. You'll see uh, on my screen, this was a tweet by John Lomparis. The protocol offered the UMC a chance to rip off the band-aid of separation all at once. Liberal United Methodist leaders instead chose to kill the protocol, discourage or intimidate against disaffiliations, and impose barriers, making the process much more drawn out and messy. They own this. So John is not wrong. Um, I actually think so the reason that this is important, this insight is important, is because starting several months ago, the president of the bishops, Tom Bickerton, started saying things like, we're done with disaffiliations. The season of people leaving is over. Now it's season time to grow. But you don't get to say that if you constrain people into staying that are unwilling and unhappy to be there. So we're talking about the entire global church. Anything outside of the United States of America has been compelled to stay because they were not given the right to exercise uh, paragraph 2553 by Bishop Tom Bickerton. Um, but also many churches, depending on which annual conference you're in, there were many churches that didn't get out either because uh, conferences asked for way too much money, because they're already poor and didn't have enough money, because the conference uh, mobilized BUMC or stay UMC campaigns to um, complicate the measures. There were a hundred different demoralizing things that could be done, and they've been patting themselves on the back, being able to hold on to so many county seat churches, big urban churches. Um, but what is the byproduct of that? This comes down to, you'll notice a theme in my thought. I, I do believe that left and right are helpful categories when dealing with social issues in politics, but also in religion. And I'll say it again, just because you lean left in politics doesn't mean you lean left in religion. I have a lot of people who write me who lean left politically, but they know that what's happening in, in Christianity is, is crazy and their sensibilities are sympathetic with the right, and I get along with them very well. If y'all don't know, I have at least two gay men who regularly write me um, at least once a month, and they love a lot of what I do, They but then they're also regularly pushing me and testing me and, and um, making sure that what I say is not a result of ignorant bigotry, but is informed by actually knowing real people with this stuff. So I have yet to change uh, much of what I think, but um, I have experienced a lot of very sane left-leaning people. If you didn't see my interview with Lonnie Brooks, the guy leans left, even theologically, but he is very sane. He still has a sense of principle, standards, uh, respect, discipline. So these people do exist, but even so, um, the left-right dichotomy, there are certain presuppositions that come with left and right. I've talked about dispositions towards inherited traditions, the right, right-leaning people think what traditions we've inherited are generally good and worthy of defense. Left-leaning people generally feel that inherited traditions are based on ignorance and bigotry and can be dismissed, and we can innovate freely. Another difference between left and right is that um, left-leaning people have an unconstrained vision. This is not my idea. This is Thomas Sowell. He's an econ econ economist and social theorist. The left believes that human nature is malleable, they believe in a tabula rasa understanding. That's a, a, a Latin term from Aristotle, I think, that, that we are not born with any kind of human nature, but that we can be reprogrammed uh, to, to behave in different ways. Right-leaning people believe in human nature, believe that there are limits to what we can put up with and how far you can push a person 
And that has to do with this scenario. Whenever you are constraining groups of people to stay in covenant bodies they don't want to be in, the left wants to believe that they can so demoralize and condition these people as to just learn to be happy in the midst of a dysfunctional covenant body. But what they're going to find is, again and again, this fictitious anthropology that they have, this fictitious understanding of human nature, is going to come to bite them in the butt. So um, that's what John Lomparis is pointing to here, and you'll see a response from Shane Rayner. I've got a, uh, this is the response. If you think disaffiliation season has hit the United Methodist Church hard, wait until 2024 when paragraph 2553 expires. You'll see more GMC church plants organized by the people leaving the churches that couldn't get a supermajority vote this year and lots of lawsuits. So how much truth is there to this? Um, I know that a lot of people within the United Methodist Church want to imagine that when the year ends and 2553 sunsets, that most of the trouble is going to be over. What Shane Rayner is saying, what John Lomparis is saying, and what I would say now is actually things are going to get more miserable. Because remember, UM News did a report several years ago showing that the majority of people in the pews do not have left-leaning sensibilities. The majority of people in the pews were either center-right or right. And so what that means is a ton of the people that lean right and center-right have been able to get out, but a ton are left behind, and they don't just roll over and give up. Rather, they agitate. Things fester. Things boil over. And you're going to find more and more assemblies that get mad, especially if General Conference next year does not provide for a new way out. If they don't, so John LaParis started with the protocol for peaceful reconciliation and separation, something like that. It was a long title. It still hasn't been rejected. It just hasn't been able to come to the General Conference floor for consideration. And they kept delaying General Conference. And now all the left leaning people that formulated it and swore that they would uphold it, reneged on their promises. But even so, it's going to come to the floor of general conference, and if they don't adopt that as a means of exit, if they don't adopt a new means of exit, Lonnie Brooks is, is bringing uh, legislation to the floor of general conference proposing that, if they let him. If they don't get any, anything like that, then you're going to be talking about trapping hundreds of thousands of people, um, and then, you know, a 1,500 congregations in the United Methodist Church. The, and then if you look abroad, there are so many non-American churches that are just going to leave if you don't provide any means out. So they think they're about to enter this time of peace. They're about to enter a time of war. Uh, there have been lawsuits in several different annual conferences. There are going to be even more coming down the pike. It's going to get nasty. If the UMC had any sense at all, it would be allowing for a peaceful exit. If they're trying to continue holding on to these churches, it is not going to go well for them. Um, it's, it's been clear time and time again that the United Methodist Church, their leaders, their, their theorists, whether you're talking about uh, general church bureaucrats or big church leaders like Adam Hamilton, they severely underestimated how much average United Methodists are not happy with the direction of the denomination and wanted to get out. And so um, Jeff Pospisil uh, brought my attention to it this, this week and said, hey, do you remember uh, when Adam Hamilton was making these projections of only so many people exiting, wanting to exit the denomination and how we have now shattered that and gone way beyond that? I remember in my own annual conference, I learned they put a, 
whenever they finally decided to enact paragraph 2553, they put together a committee to uh, start processing disaffiliations. And whenever they spoke to one another about how many churches they thought were going to go through the process, oh, you know, maybe five, five or six. Well, it turned out being 20 times that. So th there were a lot of people that have just been tone deaf and have not appreciated how dysfunctional and awful. They've just learned to live in the midst of poison and don't know what's wrong with other people who take issue with it. So anyway, I'm going to direct you to my screen again here, and here's a, a presentation that Jeff Pospisil put together just with some um, uh, facts and graphs and data. It doesn't have any audio, I don't think. I listened to it beforehand, but uh, I, I haven't given it its due. You'll see the first is a pie chart. Um, an updated graph shows the 1% of non-U.S. churches that defied Bishop Bickerton to disaffiliate anyway. This includes... Oh, wait, that's at the end. Excuse me. I thought that was a weird place to start. Okay, so this is UMC disaffiliations. All right. Um, on June 9th, 2023, Adam Hamilton shared a graph on Facebook. I'm going to pause it. With some predictions. Okay, so this is the graph. He predicted the UMC would still retain between 24,000 and 26,000 U.S. churches at the end of 2023, and the global Methodist denomination would have two to 3,000 U.S. churches. So... Um, yeah, this corresponds with that remaining UMC 25.5 disaffiliations, um, just shy of 4,000 disaffiliations. Well, wait, is that now? Jeff, if I say anything wrong, just tell me. Let's go to the next slide real quick. I'll, I'll check my comments here in a minute. Okay, so this is reality. Oh, wait, the last one said, no, it didn't. Okay, but he has a comment here. All right, I'll pause it here. Well, are there is there an explanation that comes down on the right? Yes, okay. An updated graph. Okay, this is an updated graph. Shows that the UMC will retain closer to 22,000. So Adam Hamilton thought it was going to be 24,000. So this is a difference of, of 2,000 churches by year end. Meanwhile, the global Methodist denomination currently has over 4,000 U.S. churches. So... Yeah, that's another difference of, of 2,000. So the GMC radically overperformed in expectations. This is over a quarter of churches. Okay, so these are non-UMC disaffiliations. <laughs> I think this is not American. Um, often left out of any conversation is the non-U.S. churches. This is a graph of the non-U.S. churches that were forbidden by Bickerton from disaffiliating. I talked about that a minute ago. Um, Okay, 1%, 103 churches have disaffiliated anyway. Uh, these are in Kenya, Bulgaria, Slovakia, and Romania. So that's not to say that this is all that's going to happen. Rather, they're just these are just the ones that couldn't take it anymore. Um, so what's going to happen with the rest of the global church? Well, we're about to see John Lon Paris and Shane, uh, what was his last name, Rainer? I already closed it. Uh, that other guy, I am of the mind that we're not going to see uh, global churches gladly holding on. Rather, what what even Mark Holland has acknowledged is a lot of the global church is going to leave. And there, he said on the front, we're okay with that. I'm okay with that, which seems nakedly um, partisan and borderline racist to me whenever you're indifferent about non-Americans leaving you and you just plowing ahead anyway. Well, so what it is is just this exceptionalist mentality of 
I'm on the right side of history and you're a bunch of bigots, and so I gladly leave you behind. What what all the acrimony about is right now is the churches that pay the most in are conservative evangelical churches, and they're the ones who want out. So they want to hold on to the wealth while taking all the power. They want to have their cake and eat it too. And so you have this, I hate you, why are you leaving me? Uh, crazy mentality. If you imagine a, a, an abusive spouse that's just... Uh, <laughs> Uh, nasty. So, I mean, it's it's an ugly, ugly thing that uh, it needs to end, but whenever they're holding on, they're prolonging the suffering. And they can say over and over till they're blue in the face, we're going to enter a time of growth. We're going to enter a time of peace. And oh, aren't our gatherings so peaceful now? And I, I believe they are for the time being. But if you don't let people go who want out, it's going to be bad. Joe R. says, the conference-level UMC mafia have made following the disaffiliation process as bad as any business divesture I saw in my career. Save face slash protect the brand. Yeah, there really is this institutionalist mentality that is really embarrassing for a denomination to have. But we're not the first people we've seen this. I mean, you saw this in the Roman Catholic uh, behavior covering up... um, bad behavior on the part of priests, you know, this kind of circling of the wagons, and we're not even going to think about what we've done wrong. We're just going to protect what we've built. It's, it's, it's heinous. Southern Baptist Convention did a similar thing to a lesser degree. Um, of course, we're not talking about um, sexual misbehavior so much in this case. We are talking about sexual ethics, but even so, um, I was, I'm going to do a report soon on this bishop, so I'm not going to say their name, but I, I talked to conservatives that have been having conversations with a bishop over a prolonged period of time where the bishop just couldn't understand why it is that the sexual ethics thing would be a bridge that so many are unwilling to cross. And for so many, the narrative has been, we're the bridge crossers. There, there isn't anything that's too far for us. All of a sudden, you have scruples. Why? Why would you take issue with this and not any of the things that came before? And um, there's so many people in leadership in the UMC who it's just like, why Why would you have no problem with this and with this? And then all of a sudden you have a problem with this. It makes no sense to them. And they just can't understand the, the plain. I mean, they look at people like me who's like, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. I can't receive it because the Bible says it's plainly wrong. And to them, they're just going, I thought we were doing all the things the Bible said was wrong. I thought that's like what we were doing. And they've found that, like, no, a lot of us have no interest in that. Like, we, we find that repugnant. We want to get away from that. Eileen says, how does telling the truth equate with threats? Her reasoning is sad because she took it down, not because it's a very bad article. Yeah, with my son, he got in trouble the other day, and, um, and I, mm, he said, I'm sorry. And I said, you're not sorry that you did it. You're sorry you got caught. You know, and there's a difference there. And they're, you know, I would rather be sorry for getting caught than not sorry at all. But even so, you know, when you're talking about what's a kind of integrity person that I want to trust, that I want to let be a voice in my life, if if they don't cotton up to when they've done something wrong or use bad judgment, but instead blame it on, oh, I, I did everything right, and you you can see it my way if you squint really hard, but really, the bad guy is this other guy who just pointed out how messed up it was. That's projection. That's that's um, that's dishonest. So I, I don't know. I would like to think that there are a bunch of people who lean left who thought that UM Insight was a reputable, respectable thing and now have seen through that because they, they published something so icky 
and then refuse to apologize for it. But, you know, I mean, this is the, the times we're living in. And, you know, what? it's my show, I can draw what parallels I want. Um, with the Israel-Hamas uh, stuff, there was this thing that happened, what, is a week ago, where the Hamas said that Israel shot a missile into their hospital and 500 people died. And it turned out to be completely false, but uh, New York Times, CNN, several other mainstream outlets just uncritically took what Hamas said and reported it. And it was only later that forensic evidence showed, no, the, it, was, it, was a, it wasn't a Hamas uh, missile, it was Islamic Jihad, it was some other group. And it didn't hit the hospital, it hit the parking lot, and it didn't kill 500, it killed maybe 100. But I mean, the thing is, after publishing that, New York Times should have lost so much credibility but they didn't because people have already chosen their side, and this is my publication of my side. So they can get a hundred things wrong. I'm still going to read them and regurgitate what I hear from them because we live in this time where truth is, is relative. We don't believe in an absolute truth, an ontological truth. We believe in my truth and your truth. So I can believe that the Israeli Defense Force uh, bombed intentionally a uh, hospital because they hate civilians, and you know what? You can talk as many facts as you want with me. I don't care because my experts at the New York Times told me that this is the truth, and I believe in them, not in your facts. That's when society becomes very dangerous because we're not sharing in the same world. We are sharing in two different realities that are self-reinforcing and self-justifying. This is A lot of people have been ringing this bell saying, hey, man, this heads towards civil war. I don't want that. We need to recreate a sense of objective reality of truth and people who have the energy for it rather than running to the next new thing, being concerned about the current thing, but people who dig their feet in and figure out the truth of a matter, who the people are that you can trust, who the actual experts are versus who the experts are that have been bought and paid for. This is what critical thinking looks like. This is what a democracy looks like. If you don't want to do it, then shut up. You don't have a right to talk. And that's not just for people on the left, that's for people on the right who want to just regurgitate their favorite people. You have to critically examine everything. Otherwise, what you believe isn't worth much. John says, uh, "We had uh, is the GMC paying any attention to the seminaries? It would be nice to have clergy who graduate from a seminary with a high view of Scripture. So did you, John, did you see the interview I did with Andy Miller III? He's over at Wesley Biblical Seminary. His school is making a big play for training candidates for ministry in the Global Methodist Church. They are biblical inerrantists, have a very high view of Scripture. Um, I, so yeah, they're, they're doing that. United Theological Seminary, where David Watson and several other uh, United Methodists— well, okay, so David Watson is now Global Methodist, but he's been very influential in the United Methodist Church, as are many people who are there right now. There's also Asbury. All three of them, and they're not the only ones. I, this is something I only started looking into a couple of months ago. And um, yeah, it seems to me that they are jockeying for position, trying to figure out, okay, what slice of the United Methodist pie can we still maybe reasonably get? Um, that's not as hard for WBS because the UMC Senate never approved them. Uh, but uh, yeah, there are a lot of seminaries that are going to reposition what I expect most are going to try and do is how can we stay in the middle as much as possible without going fundamentalist right? 
when it's clear that on the grassroots level, it's clear to me at least, that on the grassroots level in the global Methodist church, there is an interest for pretty far right-leaning clergy, pretty close to biblical literalist, biblical inerrantist. Um, I think most of the people running the academy, the seminaries, the major seminaries right now, are uncomfortable with that level of biblical hermeneutic. Um, a good conversation on this, if you haven't seen it yet, my brother Daniel and I sat down for this—it was the second or third episode of the transitional book. No, it was the second one because we talked about the social witness um, portion of the transitional book of doctrines and discipline. And um, we, we talked about the biblical hermeneutic thing and the people in charge and their level of comfort or discomfort with— um, something, anything that smells like a fundamentalist viewpoint. A lot of people tapped into this with my conversation with Matt Sickle as well. Matt Sickle was very clear that a biblical inerrantist viewpoint is not welcome in the global Methodist church or in any Methodist. You can't be a Methodist and be a biblical inerrantist. And so I pushed back on that. I, I, I thought I pushed back on it pretty good. But um, anyway, these are things that we need to be thinking and talking about. And yes, the seminaries absolutely matter. The, the training that a pastor gets really matters. And, um, you know, I, I got trained at um, Boston University School of Theology. It's about as far left as it gets. It was very hostile for me. I thought I started off there thinking I was a lefty because I care about the poor. and um, I wanted to learn how to, to work with the poor and improve their lives. And the school had nothing practical to offer me there. They just had virtue signaling. But in the meantime, you know, I got to be familiarized with all of this. Um, I, was, I was swimming for three years and anti-Christian theology. And that's what made me stronger. Most people aren't built that way. They, they can't just swim in hostility for three years and come out stronger. Most people, I mean, like you have to be borderline sociopathic to be like that, you know, or, or you know, you have to have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. But it's just, um, if you're going to be forming if you're going to have a norm that you have an institution that is generating people of high integrity who have a proper love and respect and knowledge of the Bible, then you can't intentionally foster and facilitate a hostile environment the way that the 13 major US, uh, UMC seminaries did, with maybe the except, exception of the United uh, Theological Seminary. Um, you have to have seminaries that are sold out for Jesus and for the Bible and are not going to teach you all the things against it but are going to teach you all the things for it because the world teaches things against it. We don't need help with that. We need help with all the good reasons for, um, and so I do hope that WBS and, and similar seminaries gain a foothold and a lot of influence in the global Methodist church.